0: Father, we ask that as we open up your word that you would open up our hearts and our minds and that you would make us attentive to your voice. We ask, God, that your voice would break into the different places in our life where we need to hear from you. God, some of us carry pockets of despair or loneliness, and we need hope and encouragement. Some of us... Are feeling a little bit uh, weary or afraid, and we need you to strengthen us. Some of us are in this place and we feel joyful and we want to be further exhorted in the way of Jesus. And we just pray, God, that wherever you might find us, that you would meet us there, that you would address us, and that you would take us to where you want us to be. And we ask these things in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. So if you're joining us for the first time today, we've been in a series over the last few months now in the book of Acts. And actually, next week, we are going to be concluding our series in Acts. And then the week after that, did somebody hoot about conclusion of the series? Um, We're not going to... Was that you, Sawyer? I'm sorry. No, I'm just... We're not going to call him out, Sawyer. Um, But... But we'll be getting a new series after that entitled Human. And so uh, I'm really looking at that. I'm lo- really looking forward at that series. We're going to be talking together about kind of what does it mean to be human? Who am I? Why am I here? And so on and so forth. And so those are some of the discussions we're going to be having in the weeks to come. But today, as we, as we come to the second and our last in the series in Acts, we are going to finally address a topic that I know so many of you have been waiting to hear. I know you know, throughout this series, we've been looking at different aspects of evangelism, what made the early church effective in their witness to Jesus. And some of you have been like, you haven't covered this topic, and you've you've been waiting, you've been waiting for this topic. It's one of your favorites. And you're like, when is he gonna finally talk about the judgment of God? So today, we're gonna be talking together about divine judgment. I was talking to one of my daughters this week, uh, Lucy, and we were talking about what I'm preaching on this week, and, and she said, I don't get how you can reconcile the love of God with this idea of divine judgment. And of course, that's a really good question. It's an important tension. I think most of us in this room, we don't like judgmental people and uh, you don't like to be a judgmental person. In fact, some of you, you walked into this place already today, and you felt judged, uh, maybe by something somebody said, maybe by how they looked at you, or you just feel like by what you're wearing, you're like, they're judging me. And if you're feeling, could you just turn to the person next to you and just say, stop judging me. Go ahead, just tell tell them to stop judging you. Of course, many of us know also from the Gospels that one of the most compelling and beautiful aspects of Jesus was that unlike the religious leaders, the Pharisees, Jesus didn't have an air of judgmentalism. He seemed to welcome outcasts, people who have an unput together and broken and conflicted lives. And Jesus welcomed them to himself. And some of you, like, that is the Jesus you came to discover. And you're just like, how do I reconcile that with this idea of divine judgment? And it's an important question because one of the interesting things when you open up the New Testament is that you quickly discover that for the writers of the New Testament, for the Apostle Paul, for Peter, for all of the rest, what you discover is that divine judgment was not for them an obstacle to the good news about Jesus. For some of us, it is. We feel like, can we get past that one and just get to the good stuff? But for them, it wasn't an obstacle to the good news about Jesus. For the early church, it was a very central aspect of the good news about Jesus. In fact, there's a little vignette we looked at a few weeks ago, uh, where Paul is preaching the gospel to a bunch of Athenian philosophers. And he goes off and he goes on this long kind of sermon and he's quoting their prophets and their poets and all this stuff, and it's this brilliant thing. And he reaches the climax. He comes to the very point of his sermon. And look what he says. These times of ignorance God has now overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Why? Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. In other words, at the heart of the Christian gospel was the fact that God raised him from the dead, that Jesus had been raised from the dead. And what Paul says is God raised Jesus from the dead and appointed him as judge. And so, for, for, the, for the early Christians, you know, um, we're, well, don't worry, we'll get there. A little sneak peek, a little like… Divine judgment was not an obstacle to sharing the good news about Jesus. It was a very central aspect of the good news about Jesus. But how could that be? And how are we to understand that? And, you know, on the one hand... I want to argue today that in spite of this topic being incredibly unpopular, I mean, modern people have gotten rid of this idea saying, look, it is primitive at best, and it is psychologically and emotionally unhealthy and dangerous at worst, And it has been utilized by people as a tool of manipulation and con- control and coercion. In spite of all of that, what I want to argue today is that this message of the judgment of God is maybe an area of Christian theology that our culture needs to hear most right now, almost than anything else. That, that, that the Christian view is actually far more nuanced and it's more complex and it's more compelling and beautiful than I think our culture's caricatures and sometimes Christian abuse has given it credit. But how can that be? You know, and that's the question we wanna explore today. And so how we're going to do this is I want to invite you to enter into a little vignette in the book of Acts where the apostle Paul is actually on trial, and he is standing before a judge who is asked to render a verdict over Paul. And then Paul is asked to speak, and he calls the judge to account on this reality— He basically says, you will be held accountable to the ultimate judge who is going to render the ultimate verdict. And he speaks to this guy about the coming judgment. And so we're going to explore how he develops this and and what what he says. But we kind of need to enter into the narrative a little bit. So we're going to kind of enter into a little bit of a meandering narrative, kind of see what's happening. And then I want to stand back, and I want us to talk a little bit about divine judgment. So does that sound like a good idea? come on, let's, let's go. All right. So, uh, so, to set the story in context, you remember last week we talked about how Paul departed from the city of Ephesus. He said a final goodbye to the elders, and he said, I have been called to Jerusalem. You see, Paul had gathered a financial gift from a variety of different Gentile churches to bring to the church in Jerusalem because they were suffering under famine. And for Paul, this was incredibly important because it would show that the Gentiles viewed the Jews as true members of the same family that God had brought them into. And so he was going to Jerusalem to deliver this gift. But here's the problem. Uh, Paul had been spending a lot of time in Gentile territory with Gentiles. there were rumors spreading about Paul in the city of Jerusalem. In fact, at this time, it was a very heated time in the city. This is just nine years before a revolution against the Roman imperial army. The Jews are going to go to war. And so nationalist sentiment is running incredibly high and nobody in the city of Jerusalem wants to talk to anybody who has a good thing to say about Gentiles because they are all up in arms against them. So Paul with this gift from Gentiles, goes into the city of Jerusalem, and the leader in the Jerusalem church, whose name was James, who was the brother of Jesus, uh, he sits Paul down, and he says, look, uh, things are tense right now, and you need to be cautious And so he told Paul, you need to put on full display to everyone that you are a faithful Jew. And there's some guys who are taking a a, a vow to God and they're offering, pay for that whole thing, go into the temple, go through all the purification rites. And Paul's like, okay, I'll do it. And Paul starts to go through with it. He walks into the temple and some of the Jews who knew him before spot him. And they're like, there's that guy, Paul, who's mixing up with Gentiles, go get him. And they grab him, they throw him down, they start beating him up. And then uh, a Roman general sees what's happening and he brings in a bunch of troops and they apprehend Paul. They arrest him and they bring him in. They're like, look, what have you done? Why are these people beating you up? And uh, uh, over the conversation, he realizes that Paul's life is now gonna be under threat of these people, but he needs to figure out, like, is he a revolutionary? Is he, like, what's wrong? So he sends Paul off to the city of Caesarea so that Paul can go to trial before the governor of of, of Judea, whose name is Felix. And um, so he's sent there. He's going to stand before trial before Felix. And after this, he'll stand trial before Festus. And then he'll stand trial before Agrippa. And then finally, he'll appeal to Rome to stand trial before Caesar. And that's the rest of the book of Acts. And um, what, what's, what's interesting is that uh, where we pick up the story, Paul now is in the courtroom, as it were. He's about ready to stand trial. Uh, some of the temple leadership have paid a high-power attorney to come up and prosecute on their behalf. His name is Tertullius, I think is what his name is. And uh, so he goes up, and, um, and the guy who is presiding over the trial is named Felix. Now, the question, who is Felix? Well, of course... Felix is a cat. Yeah, there it is. Um, You know, I I think you'll all agree. You know, Hello Kitty has seen a dramatic post-80s resurgence. But when is Felix going to make his resurgence? I mean, when is Felix going to get a Netflix miniseries and a little section in Knott's theme park, you know, and some merch, you know, some Felix merch? Um, So Felix is actually not a cat. He was the... uh, The Roman governor over Judea, you remember Pilate was the governor over Judea when Jesus was tried? Well, Felix is filling that same role. And he, interestingly, was a former slave. He's the only freedman, the person who was formerly a slave to be freed, who actually became a a, a Roman governor. And so he was a crafty politician. He knew how to maneuver and get in with Caesar and get his appointment. But Although he was a crafty politician, he was a mean and unjust and a brutal tyrant, and he was well known around the area for uh, sending out troops to apprehend uh, Jews that he suspected of revolutionary zeal, and he had have them crucified almost every day this was happening. And he was so bad at his job that he eventually got fired by Caesar. And uh, the Roman uh, historian Tacitus said this about him. He said quote, Practicing every kind of cruelty and lust, he wielded royal power with the instincts of a slave, which was essentially his way of saying he was unjust and he was cruel. But not only that, he was also an immoral man who was controlled by some unbridled lusts and passions, you know. Uh, the story is told, he, um, there was a, a neighboring ruler who was married to a young teenage bride whose name was Drusilla. And he encountered her. He's like, oh, she's beautiful. I've got to have her. And so he starts seducing her and trying to lure her with promises of money and power. And then he even hires, as the story goes, a magician to cast some spells to get her, you know, I guess like some, you know, Harry Potter style, you know, spell to get him. Anyway, um, and he, he ends up getting her to leave her husband and come and be his fourth wife. And so Felix is not, he's he's immoral, he's unjust, and this is who Paul now is having to stand before as judge. And so the trial begins, and the first to speak is the prosecuting attorney, and listen to what he says. Uh, He begins like this. He says, since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, he's beginning with flattery as they did, uh, re- reforms are being made for this nation, and in every way, everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude, which he's totally lying. Felix was a train wreck of a governor, and everyone knew that, but they did, they're trying to butter him up. And now they turn to the accusation. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man, Paul, a plague, one who stirs up riots among the Jews, and throughout all the world and this is the ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse you. So he finishes his case. And now it's Paul's turn to give his defense, and listen to what Paul says in response. When the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, "Well, Knowing that for many years you have been judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. This wasn't that long ago. There were eyewitnesses. Go verify it yourself. Uh, and, And they did not find me disrupting or disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogue or in the city or anywhere else for that matter. I'm innocent. As the day is long, he says, ask anybody in town. And uh, he says, look, though, if I'm guilty of one thing, it's this. He says, "Uh, I will confess to you this. This is my guilt. I am guilty of being a follower of Jesus. And he steps up and he uses this opportunity to bear witness to Jesus. He says, according to the way which you call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. And so I always take pains to have a clear conscience before God and man. Now, it's a pretty straightforward case. Uh, there's no evidence. There's no testimony against him. And Felix is asked to render a judgment. But it's interesting because he, he, he sort of, he, he pauses And even though it's clear what should be done, he does nothing. And we're like, what's going on, Felix? And and on the one hand, he's caught on the horns of a real dilemma because the Jewish temple leadership, uh, he's, he's in a bad place with them, and he's trying to do something that will at least placate them. On the other hand, Caesar has given him authority to exercise judgment. This is a Roman citizen, Paul is. And so he, he's got to do right by him. And so he's caught on the horns of the dilemma. And then besides that, he's heard through the grapevine that Paul has some significant financial resources. And he thinks, oh, this could be good. Maybe if I, if I don't set him free and I detain him a little bit, maybe we can have a little quid quo pro going on. You know, uh, you know, you be good to Felix, and Felix will be good to you. You know, it was the uh, civil rights attorney, Brian Stevens, who said, we have a system of justice that treats you better if you're rich and guilty than if you're poor and innocent. Wealth, not culpability, shapes outcomes. Now, of course, Brian Stevens was talking about justice in the United States, but if that was true here in any sense, it was definitely true in the ancient world of Rome. You know, it was wealth, not culpability that made the real difference. And it makes a difference for feeling. He's like, look, so he'd bring back Paul. You know, he heard it in the reading. He's like, come on, uh, you know, give me a little money, and maybe we'll think about letting you out. So Paul is stuck now. He's going to be chained up probably, but he's given some freedom. Friends can come visit him because, you know, he doesn't want to be too harsh on him. But it's at this point that um, after the case is done, and Paul's kind of down you know, in the prison cell or whatever, that he gets a call from Felix. And Felix and his wife, Drusilla, it turns out, want Paul to come and deliver a little speech for them. And, you know, they didn't have Netflix back then, so sometimes the best you could do is get a really good rhetorician to come and spin some words and, you know, be all poetic. So they're like, bring him up. He's renowned, you know, for being an orator. So they they bring him up, and they ask him to, to speak about the, the, this Jesus story that he's been telling. And it's interesting because um, notice in our text which aspects of the Jesus story Paul highlights. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. So come on, deliver to us some faith, and you know, some stuff about faith. What does he share with them? Which aspects of the gospel story does Paul highlight? This is the man who stands in judgment over him, whose verdict can give him either his freedom or death. And what does he say? Well, look at the three aspects he, he brings out. Number one, he says uh, he reasoned to them about righteousness. Uh, righteousness in the biblical imagination, uh, it's justice. It's using your power in a way that is faithful to your neighbors, And so he talks to this man who has been abusing his power about the rightful use of power as if, and and, and Felix is hearing this. He's like, I I didn't, (laughs) this isn't what I was asking for. Um, Can you talk to me about something else? So then he turns to both Drusilla and Felix, and he starts talking to them about self-control, Oh, well, you know how you, in your unbridled lust, you, 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 you're living in an adulterous relationship. You know something about a lack of self-control. Let's talk about that. And it's now starting to get really awkward and uncomfortable. And, and, and Felix is like, look, you, to righteousness, you know, self-control, isn't there anything else you can talk to me about? He's like, yeah, let's talk about the coming judgment. Well, Felix doesn't like this at all. He was alarmed, he was, he was actually terrified. There was some authority in Paul's voice that alarmed him. And he said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, when it's more convenient, then we can have a conversation. And then he goes home. What I wanna do now though, you know, he, he said it was inconvenient to talk about judgments, but I don't want it to feel inconvenient for us. And so what I want to do now is I want to circle back around, and I just want to reflect on this one phrase about judgment that Paul spoke to the man who thought he wielded judgment. And look back at the text. Paul talked to them. He reasoned with them about faith in Jesus. But what about faith in Jesus did he talk to him about? Well, righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment. In other words, for him, the coming judgment was a central aspect to faith in Jesus. Now let's just talk for a minute, can we, about judgment. So, in the first century world, the rabbis painted this pretty dramatic and disturbing picture of the final day of judgment. In their imagination, they said, God had these books, and in these books, he was writing down everything you had ever thought or did or said. And the day was coming, the history was on a linear path, and there was a day coming when God would act, and we would stand before God, and the books would be open, and you would be judged by what was written in those books, which is kind of a disturbing thought, isn't it? I mean, think for a moment, just put it in modern terms. If everything you thought, said, or did ever in your whole life was put on a flash drive, and then we stuck it in the computer and said, let's pull it up, you know, have you ever gotten a credit card statement and you look at the bill, you look at the bill, you're just like, there's $8,000, are like there's no way I spent that much. But then you look at it, you're like, I, I did, I spent that, I spent that. I said, there's a record of everything. And this was the picture. And when you open up the New Testament, you discover that this was not just a fiction this attested to something in reality in the apocalyptic vision of John in the book of Revelation. He described it like this, similar terms. He said, then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. And from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And then I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. And then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. In other words, we will give an account for our lives for the things that we have done. Paul puts it like this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He says, we must all, how many of us? All. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. You're like, well, what about Jesus? Well, Jesus put it like this. He says, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. I mean, think about those disdainful, those flippant ways in which you've spoken about or to other people. Jesus says, we will give an account for our words that have done harm and damage to other people. For by your words, you will be justified, and by your words, you will be condemned. Condemned. Now, at this point, somebody might say, look, this is what I don't like about you Christians. You know, you're, you're always appealing to scare tactics. You know, it's kind of like uh, why, many kid, why many parents tell their kids the Santa myth, and why do we tell our kids about Santa Claus? Well, you know, you say, well, it's to, it's to stir their wonder and curiosity. It's like, well, yeah, but it's also a helpful tool of manipulation and control, right? Because it's November, And they're misbehaving. You can say, look, kid, you better watch out. You better not cry. You better not pout. I'm telling you why, because Santa Claus is coming to town. So get your behavior in order. And people are like, that's just Christianity. Like, Jesus is coming to town, you know, Johnny Cash. You know, sooner or later, he's going to cut you down, you know. And, And you're just like, like. This seems, like, manipulative and coercive, and isn't it, like, kind of damaging for people to live under this kind of threat and fear? And, 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 like, what are we even supposed to make of the day of judgment anyway? And how do we reconcile that with the love of God? Well, let me say three things. Number one, God takes judgment seriously because God takes our humanity seriously. Listen, you are not a case... You are not a disease. Uh, You are not a highly evolved bag of molecules, the result of a mindless process that never had you in mind in the first place. You are a human. You have been created in the image of God. And you have a mind and an intellect and a will. And you, by God's will, have power and authority that you exercise in this world, over your body and what you do with your body, over the responsibilities you have, whether as a teacher or a a plumber or a mechanic or any number of different professions where you exert some sort of power over other people and they're dependent upon you, you and I will be held accountable to God for what we do with our bodies and what we do with that which has been entrusted into our hands. And that's incredibly important and good news because it says that what human beings does matter. And, you know, we live in a culture right now, this secular age that has, has it, 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 in a closed system, and, 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 and we don't really realize once we cut ourselves off of the anchor of transcendent justice… Like where we will float next, there is no accountability to anyone, anywhere, but God holds human beings accountable because human beings matter. You matter. What you do matters. What you say matters. And our lives will be open before God, and we will give an account for what we have done with our words and with our thoughts and with our actions. So God takes judgment seriously because he takes humanity seriously, Secondly, God takes judgment seriously because God takes justice seriously. You know, there, there, there was a book that I read a couple years ago. Um, it, it, I don't know if you've heard about this book by a great, brilliant Russian writer whose name is Alexander Solzhenitsyn. And he was a, a teacher and a former soldier for Russia that got actually put into uh, the Russian gulags and Russian Internment or prison camps for people who had said the wrong thing about the government. And the best years of his lives were absolutely stripped from him and destroyed, along with literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of other people who had done nothing wrong and whose lives were being stripped from them by the people who held power. And he wrote this book that Time Magazine called the best work of nonfiction of the 20th century won the Pulitzer Prize but in this book he does an expose of what he experienced in these prisons. And he highlights the radical injustice that he experienced and there's this one chapter uh, called The Blue Caps where he talks about the ways in which soldiers had like actually abused their power and in a gratuitous way were just torturing people for fun. And He he talked about how after finally the season passed in Russia, he said, the people who did all of those crimes were never held to account. And he contrasted that actually with Nazi Germany who underwent the uh, Nuremberg trials. And he said, in in Germany, he said, 86, this was by 1966, he said, 86,000 people had been held on trial, they had been exposed, and their deeds had been condemned. And he said, in Russia, by that same time, there had not been 10. And he, he, he wrote about what, uh, how this would sabotage justice by not holding people to account, and he wrote this. He said, hey, let us be generous. We will not shoot them. We will not pour salt water into them, nor bury them in bedbugs, nor keep them on sleepless stand-up for a week nor kick them with jackboots, nor beat them with rubber truncheons, nor squeeze their skull in iron rings, nor put them into a cell so small that they lie on top of one another like pieces of baggage. We will not do any of these things they did. But for the sake of our country and our children, we have the duty to seek them all out and bring them to trial. In other words, justice must be done. And then he said this: not to put them to trial so so much. He says not to put them to trial so much as their crimes, and to compel each of them to announce loudly, "Yes, I was an executioner and a murderer." We have to condemn publicly the very idea that some people have the right to repress others. When we neither punish nor reproach evildoers, we are simply protecting their tri- their trivial old age and we are thereby ripping the foundations of justice from beneath new generations. And listen, if God does not hold the universe to account humans to account for all of the radical, I mean the 20th century is the most bloody century in the history of humanity. And if humans are not held to account, we will end up shattering the very foundations of cosmic justice. And so, So, judgment matters to God because justice matters to God. The the preacher and writer Fleming Rutledge puts it like this. She says, if sin is not exposed, named, and denounced, then there has been no justice and God is dishonored. So, God takes judgment seriously because he takes humans seriously and because he takes justice seriously. But let me just say this. Like... Judgment, And we have to understand this. And I, I think people miss this, but if you stop and think about it for five minutes, you know this is true. Judgment is actually not intention with God's love. Judgment is a proper expression of the love of God. Love that looks indifferently at injustice is no love at all. You know, it was Eli Wiesel who endured the horrors of Auschwitz, who came out and said, the opposite of love is not hate. It is indifference. Indifference to radical injustice and evil. And God, if He is indifferent to that, is no God. He is certainly not the infinite and eternal ocean of justice and goodness and love that He has revealed to be in Scripture. God must hold evil to account as an expression of His love. Cuban-American theologian Husto Gonzalez puts it like this. He says, love is truly concerned over the actions and the being of the beloved. A truly loving mother demands of her son that he behave, not just because it will please her, but because she knows that good behavior is good for her child. A father who allows his daughter to do as she pleases and then simply tells her it's okay is not a very good father. You know that to be the case, Right? Love truly wishes the best for the beloved. Such love ultimately coincides with justice. And listen, God's love is such that he will one day hold us to account. Our lives will be laid bare and we will give an answer and he will speak his no over that which is not worth embracing even as it's exposed in our lives We'll conclude with uh, this note from C.S. Lewis. Actually, I'm not concluding. Don't, don't, don't misunderstand me. Did I say that? No, I didn't say that. <laughs> We're almost there. Don't worry. But Lewis says this seriously. In the end, that face which is the delight or the terror of the universe must be turned upon each of us, either with one expression or with the other either conferring glory inexpressible or inflicting shame that can never be cured or disguised. I read in a periodical the other day that the fundamental thing is how we think of God. By God, it is not. How God thinks of us is not only more important, it is infinitely more important. And so let me just conclude by making these three observations. This is sobering isn't it this is sobering news that's why paul when he was referring back to the resurrection of the just and the unjust he said quote i strive always to keep my conscience clear before god and man do you do i do we live aware of how we are treating other humans that are created in the image of god these are precious people who are the objects of god's love do we care how we speak about one another and to one another and treat each other and how we honor or, or don't honor the creator of all things? This is sobering. You know, I know it's common for Christians to think, and some of you might have this question. You're like, wait a second, wait a second. Like, I thought part of the deal with Christianity is that you get a get out of judgment free card. Wasn't that like part of the thing like, you know... Um, you know, you, you, isn't salvation by grace? And like, you know, there's people that will stand and then not the rest of us because we have Jesus and he lets us off the hook. Like, what's, what's up with all this stuff about like, like, how do I understand this? Listen, salvation, make no mistake. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone in Christ alone. This world was lost and broken and in ourselves and by ourselves, we are hopeless We needed a power from outside. The creator of all things broke into this world in the incarnation of Jesus, and he took on the power of sin and death and darkness so that he might defeat all of that so that we can be rescued and healed and saved. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. You are saved by grace, but you are not saved from having to give an account of your life, and neither am I. And it's sobering. It's not just sobering. This is alarming. You know, Felix hears this, and he is terrified. He's freaked out. He's like, whoa, whoa. He's like, get away from me. It's utterly alarming to Felix. But this news is not alarming to everyone. For some people, this is the best news on the face of the earth. You know, um, I was listening to a speech last night that Dr. King gave in 1967, just one year before he was assassinated. He was giving this speech to a, a gathering of civil rights leaders who were just wearied and saddened by what was going on. And in the course of that, that speech, he, he, he uttered these words that are, are so common, commonly known, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards Justice. And that wasn't just rhetoric or poetry, that was a worldview that said the universe is going somewhere. We live in a linear history that ultimately is reaching a final moment where God will expose that he is God and the world will be held to account for all the injustice. And he was speaking those words to say, hold on, be hopeful because justice will win in the end. God is judge, not these humans who are destroying and messing everything up. But you know who this news is alarming for? It's for the humans that are using their power to do harm and to mess things up. They're on the wrong side of cosmic history. We are on the wrong side of cosmic history anytime we are using our words and our attitudes and our hearts and our minds to do harm to people who have been created in the image of God. So this is sobering, this is alarming. But thirdly and finally, this news strangely is emboldening. You know, the reason why I focused on this aspect of this, you know, there's a lot of stuff going on in Paul's trials. The thing I was just struck by in this text was just the chutzpah of the Apostle Paul. I mean, look at this boldness. The guy holds his life in his hand He can set him free or put him to death, and he looks him square in the eyes and says, the coming judgment. Like, where does this guy get this boldness? And I think in Paul's letters, he opens up a little bit of what's going on in his own headspace that puts him there. And in one of his letters, he writes this. He says, look, if you want to know, I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. I mean, wouldn't you like to say that? Some of us, we walk around, we're so fragile and insecure about what everyone thinks about me, and oh, I don't know if I'm dressed right, or my resume is right, or my job is impressive enough, and like, we're, they're, they're judging me, and like, he says, I don't, like, I don't care what they think about, it means very little. He says, in fact, I don't even judge myself, my conscience is clear, but that doesn't make me innocent, it is the Lord who judges me. The reason why Paul could have confidence in the face of human judgment was because he placed his ultimate confidence in the final judge over all humanity. And who is that judge? How could he have this kind of confidence? Because he knew the judge of the final judgment. He knew the one who had been given all authority in heaven and on earth, the one who all humanity would be open before his face. It was none other than the judge who got down from the seat of judgment and bore the penalty in the place of and for the sake of the condemned so that the condemned can go free. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Karl Barth, the great... Reformed theologian put it like this He says, We may go to meet the judge with unconditioned confidence because he is the judge. He is the judge who has yielded himself to the judgment of God for me and has taken away all malediction from me. Or, in the wonderful words of Martin Luther, he said, Look, when the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, say to him, I admit I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know one who has suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and where he is, there I shall be also. Now, you might be thinking, like, what? Like, but I, I'm still, like, I'm trying to keep this tension together. Listen, maybe this will help. You remember when the woman was caught in adultery and was thrown before Jesus the law says she needs to be stoned. Jesus, what do you say? Do you know what is happening in that moment? Jesus is being asked to render a verdict, to render judgment. And what does he do in that moment? Jesus speaks a no over adultery. He says… Neither do I condemn you. Now, go and sin no more. Like, that, that stuff you were doing is destructive. Like, Jesus does not say, well, just continue on. He says, no. He speaks a no over that, but he speaks a yes over this woman's life. He says, I do not condemn you. And you know what he does in that moment? In this woman who's being exposed, Jesus turns, and he exposes and condemns the religious leaders who are around him for their hypocrisy. He is there acting as the judge, The judge who we will one day face is none other than the one who bore our sin and shame and condemnation so that we can be set free. I'll close with this quote from Fleming Rutledge as our band comes up. But she says this. She says, with all due respect to the religions of the world, there is no other story like the Christian story. The God who persecutes and condemns the God who wreaks vengeance. Yes, we know this God from the caricatures. We know this God from the old paintings. We know this God from hearing continual references to, well, the Old Testament God. But she says this, this is not who God is. The Old Testament God is the one who has come down from his throne on high into the world of sinful human flesh and of his own free will and decision has come under his own judgment in order to deliver us from everlasting condemnation and bring us into eternal life. He has not required human sacrifice. He has himself become the human sacrifice. He has not turned us over and forsaken us He was himself turned over and forsaken for us. And this is very, very good news. And may your heart and mind, may we dig our roots in this good news and live with sobriety and awareness, but confidence in our coming judge. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you now. And before your face, we are fully known And we are also fully loved, infinitely loved. And I pray, oh God, that you would enable us today in a fresh and new way to dig our hearts into your love on full display in the self-giving love of your Son, Jesus. And would you, by your Spirit, empower us and strengthen us to live whole and good, and loving, and just, and gracious, and pure, and holy lives before your face. Help us, O God, as a community to live into this calling and vocation, and to do so with joy and with confidence that's appropriate of those who have been apprehended by your love. Amen.